0: Coming to you from Westchester, PA. This is the Westchester Church Podcast. If I were a man, I was five years ago. I'd take a flamethrower to this place. Hooah! It's been a year. This week, ever since we began our series in the Sermon on the Mounts. This is how you live Christ-like in this world. One of the main core ideas of the Sermon on the Mount, as we've seen many times, is this problem that Jesus identifies as you people have been scribe-like and Pharisee-like all this time. But now if you want to have life, if you want to have true spiritual peace, this is how you can be Christ-like in the days ahead. Where we left off a couple of weeks ago in Matthew chapter 7 was as Jesus nears the very end of the Sermon on the Mount. He speaks about a house that has been constructed upon a rock and another house that has been made of sand. Notice how both houses will be attacked by storms. Notice that both of these individuals who he's speaking to in this way will be a siege by everything that this world has to ever throw at us. And yet as the, all of its debris rises in the air and the dust settles, the only houses that will be standing in the morning will be those that have been formed on the solid rock. Everything else is a sandcastle, Jesus says. And yet again what he's saying is this is what it looks like to live your life as a Sermon on the Mount kind of person on the rock. And if you want to be a sandcastle kind of person, keep imitating scribes and Pharisees. Great was its fall, it says. And so with that said, we come to the very end of Matthew chapter 7. And starting in verse 28, here's what we read as Jesus has said all of these things, 5, 6, and 7. It says, When Jesus finished these sayings, it says that the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. What Jesus is saying yet again is that religion that has been rooted in self righteousness, in shame, in perfectionism, in know it allism, and fancying oneself as a religious gatekeeper, keeping all kinds of people out of it at all costs. That might wear God's name. And yet it truly is of the evil one. That is not life. That is death. That is religious slavery. You see, what Jesus is showing us is that life only comes to us. Peace only comes to us when we intentionally make a decision to live exactly how Jesus is, is, is referring to here in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And in our text, we notice a couple of words used that it says how the people were astonished at his teaching. Now, to our American eyes, that word is just, oh, well, that was nice. That was pretty cool. And then they go home. But in the original language, what this word means is that you are captivated by what you've just seen. That you are so mesmerized that you have cold chills all over your body. And it begs the question, are we astonished at what Jesus has just said to us this past year? Are we like these people in the first century and we hear Jesus saying all of these remarkable things no one had ever heard before? And we are so mesmerized that we're like, that is exactly how I want to live. That I would die living this lifestyle. They're astonished at his teaching, but but notice how how it also says in the text that that he was speaking as one who had authority. What this word means in the original Greek language is that you are hearing a person who not just knows what they're speaking about, but they're saying it in such a way that that they're stirring you inside your bones like, like, yes, this is how I want to live. Like, yes, I need to change the way that I'm thinking, the way that I've been living my life. This is who I'm going to be from now on. And notice in the text how it says that, that they observed that he was speaking as one who had authority, not as one of the scribes. Scribes and Pharisees could really only teach one way in, in this first century. You were allowed to recite very long. Readings of other rabbis who had lived four hundred years before you and all of your accepted customs and traditions, but you were never allowed to ever interject your own original thoughts into the text. You can never give uh, give any fresh thoughts, any fresh insight that would coincide with the text, and all these people Jesus is speaking to all they 've ever heard is just this heartless religion of here 's what our elders have all been, been saying for 300 years don't like like you always have to wash your hands before you go inside the temple and just just long droning dry heartless religiosity and now here comes Jesus saying you have heard everything that church customs and traditions have ever claimed but but now i tell you this and i tell you that and i tell you this and i tell you that And it's like, Jesus, you're not supposed to be doing that. Jesus, who gave you permission to teach like that? I mean, the scribes and the clergymen of this age were were enraged at Jesus because of this. They were envious at his following. I mean, Jesus is 30 years old as he says all of this, six years younger than I am. And all these guys are just looking at Jesus like, who does this punk think that he is? Teaching like that. Breaking all of our rules and customs. And so they saw Jesus as a threat. Because the scribes were the ones who got to determine who was a child of God and who was not a child of God. They were the ones who were all making such such huge decisions as, here here are the people who are our neighbors, and here are the people who are not our neighbors. Here's the people we can look upon as human beings. Here's the people we can look down upon as lower than the animals. And so in the text, it says that... that as Jesus finished saying all of these things, he, he came down from the mountain. And the chapter ends and it's like, okay, that's the end of the Sermon on the Mount. But wait. We come into chapter 8 and we see that it is really a continuation of the Sermon on the Mount. Where it says in Matthew 8 and verse 1 that when Jesus came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. And behold, the text says, a leper came to him. A leper knelt before him saying, Lord, if you were willing, you can make me clean. You see, we see that this is not the end of the Sermon on the Mount, but really this is just the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus may have finished speaking audibly the Sermon on the Mount, but as far as teaching the Sermon on the Mount goes, Jesus is just getting started. He proclaims it with his hands. He's got it living and burning, blazing in his bones, honoring God in his actions. And Jesus becomes the Sermon on the Mount. And he embodies the kingdom of heaven before everybody's eyes because once Jesus comes down from the mountain, immediately he is confronted with this very dangerous religious situation. A very risky situation Where it says that a leper comes before him and bows down before him saying, Lord, I believe that you can make me clean. Well, lepers could not be in the city, and we know this in the Old Testament. Anytime lepers came into any kind of a city, into a civilization, they would have to always cover up their mouth and cry, warn everybody, get away from me, I'm unclean. Lepers have been banned in the temple, blacklisted, demonized as being lower than the animals. This guy is the untouchable of untouchables. You see, as a leper, there was a line drawn in his society that that I'm not like other people. I'm less than human because of my leprosy. And you know, we have a lot of lines drawn in our world today too, don't we? Got the Democrats over here, we got the Republicans over here, liberals over here, conservatives over here. We look at people and say, That's not a person, that is a conservative person. Ugh. That's not a human being, that is a liberal, that is an illegal, that is a lesbian, that is that is somebody who is lower than the animals. That is an untouchable, and you don't get anywhere near that person. They've got AIDS, they're an alcoholic, whatever it might be. But what I love about Jesus is that Jesus doesn't see people like that. Yes, he knows that that we've committed sin and that we have been living in sin. Jesus understands this, but, but Jesus blurs those kind of societal lines. Jesus humanizes the dehumanized. And you know, I love this leper because he's breaking protocol doing this. I mean, he's not supposed to be anywhere near... Where Jesus is right now. I mean, you can know that people are are running as fast as they can away from this guy because he's a walking freak show. And yet, the leper is not the only one who's breaking protocol, though, is it? Jesus is also breaking protocol here. Because while everybody sprints away from this guy, Jesus is walking to this guy. But not just that, but Jesus actually reaches out and he does the unimaginable in this time where he actually reaches out and he touches the leper. I am willing, Jesus says, now be cleansed. See, Jesus is not supposed to be doing this because in the first century, if you touched a leper, you now were unclean. You cannot come inside the temple. And so just minutes after the Sermon on the Mount has been proclaimed by Jesus, Jesus is instantly already breaking religious convention here. When he touches him, Jesus is communicating that that I am willing to be shut out by other people. So that this man who has been shut out now can be welcomed and included as one of his very own people. And I love there what we find in verse 3 of Matthew 8 where he says, Go back into the very temple who has shut its doors from you all these years. Get back in there, he says. Show yourself to the very priest who just yesterday had been too good to ever come near you. And I love so, so much a quote that I found of a theologian whose name was, was Rachel Held Alvins. And what she said is that, that what makes the gospel offensive? is not who it keeps out, but who it lets in. See, the gospel is not offensive because of who it keeps out, but because of who it lets in. There's a minister whose name name, um, is Danny Proud, and what he says about this is, he says, the gospel is not a stumbling block to people because of who it excludes, but because of who it includes. Jesus was not offensive because he was self-righteous or dogmatic. That's why a lot of Christians in the world are so offensive to people. But Jesus was offensive to the ultra-religious ultra because his, he has radical love for the outsider. And, and then at last he says that the way of Jesus is not us versus them, it's us for them. There had been a writer who had said this. He said, like the religious elite of the first century, we are destined for a life of being barrier markers and line drawers. If we insist on holding to a culturally diluted version of Jesus, and yet then he says, but when we rediscover the radical message of Jesus... A message proclaimed loving, or rather, a message that proclaimed love for the outcast from beginning to end. We accept his divine invitation to become the people who flip the tables, who erase the lines, and who destroy all of those kind of barriers. Then he says, Let's stop being the religious gatekeepers who focus only on how and when we can keep certain people out. Instead, let us be the loving counterculture followers of Jesus who unrelentingly invite the outsider to come in and to experience God's grace. Brothers and sisters, that is Christianity right there. That is what Jesus is inviting us to as his followers. And as it goes, I had experienced just how hard this is to, to live, even in a Christian community. Because I got into a little bit of trouble a couple weeks back. I'd written something on social media, and I mean, when I wrote it, what I was saying was, we need to look at people and see human beings made in God's image. And so, I mean, I was humanizing Nancy Pelosi, I was humanizing people who wear red hats that say, make America great again. I was humanizing all of these people in the world, alcoholics, drug addicts, recovering hookers, whatever it might be, whoever we look at as being less than human, and I was humanizing them. And I was saying that loving our neighbor as ourselves in that regard. And there was a person who had shared that, that post, and I mean, people lost their minds over what I said. I was called a dangerous minister because I had said that. And I mean, when I say, love your neighbor as, as ourself, and when I say, look at anybody and see the face of a brother or a sister, what I mean, or rather what I do not mean is anything goes. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying every idea and lifestyle in the world is is completely all right. But all that I was saying, all that I ever will say, is that when we look at people, we need to see human beings that have been made in God's image. We need to see who we used to be in their eyes, rather than looking at people and seeing animals looking back at us. It kind of scares me when when just echoing Jesus' teachings, is a controversial thing in the church. That makes a person dangerous for saying, look at human beings and see human beings. And yet, I think what it is though, is that a lot of times we aren't Christ-like in that regard, but we're scribe-like. We see Jesus as a threat to this, this religious empire we have concocted in our image. People saying that, Humanizing those kind of people is, is a dangerous thing, and, and that is disrespectful to the cross. But looking down on the outcast and on the outsider in that way, kicking them in the teeth in a sense, that climbs up to the cross, sticks a double bird in Jesus' face, and spits right in his face, because that is not the lifestyle Jesus has called us to. The Sermon on the Mount is dangerous. It's dangerous because it confronts our well-guarded positions. It messes with our politics. It reveals our inner raging scribe and Pharisee, gatekeeper religious elites. And yet this isn't just something that that some people struggle with. This is something that is stepping on my toes and your toes and, and everybody else's toes as well. And yet we find Jesus living the Sermon on the Mount from beginning to end, though. Jesus says, don't just love those who love you, but love everybody. And what we also find in Matthew chapter 8 is that in this exact same chapter, Jesus comes across a couple of men who have unclean spirits and a demon in them. One man especially who who identifies himself as a legion. He's got many... um, Unclean demonic spirits in him. We read in, in there um, in Mark's gospel that, that nobody would go anywhere near this guy because he was naked and bleeding and screaming day and night. I mean, he's just a lunatic. And yet, once Jesus once again moves toward this kind of person and not away from him, what we find is once Jesus gets a hold of him, suddenly. This exact same guy everybody had been terrified of is, you know, he's sitting there and now he's in his right mind and he's clothed. And he's a brand new man proclaiming Jesus throughout in the Decapolis. Jesus said, do not worry about your life, about what you will wear, about life itself. And once again, we find Jesus practicing this in Matthew chapter 8 as there, there is a terrifying storm on the sea. Just as I would have, we we also hear the apostles freaking out. Lord, we're about to drown. Don't you care that we're about to drown? But Jesus is so at peace that that he's asleep in the back of the boat. (laughs) Jesus is not worried about that. I mean, he lived the Sermon on the Mount after he came down from the mountain, but, but he was still living it long before he ever walked up on the mountain and proclaimed it. He was living the Sermon on the Mount when he was fasting 40 days and 40 nights. He's not on a street corner as he does this. But he's in the middle of a desert. It's just him and God and Satan. And I mean, for for that month and a half, what is Jesus doing? He is hungering and thirsting for righteousness. He's praying, Lord, please please do not lead me into temptation, but deliver me from the evil one. Jesus said in John, or rather in Matthew chapter 7, not to judge, not to condemn. And there's a woman who's brought before Jesus one day by the scribes and the Pharisees. And they're trying to trap him. She was caught in the very act of adultery. She should be stoned. And yet Jesus is standing there. And after he silences her accusers, and they're, they're all walking away, he says, Woman, where are your accusers? I do not condemn you. You deserve to be condemned, but, but I do not condemn you now. Now go, and from now on, stop living this way, Jesus says. And he looks at you, and he looks at me this morning, and says that, that there is now no more condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But go and stop living this way. Stop being scribe-like. Start being Christ-like. When you go to work, or when you go, go to your house at the end of the day, Jesus said that I have not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And, to, and just dozens and dozens of times in the Gospels, we really what we have is Jesus did this and he fulfilled that. Jesus said this and he fulfilled that. Jesus said when you are persecuted, when you are maligned and ostracized, do not ever despair that, but rather jump for joy. And we know that when when Jesus is in Gethsemane and when he goes to the cross, that it really is an amazing statement where it says, Jesus, who for the joy set before him, endured the cross, despising its shame. Jesus was not lifted up on the cross. Jesus jumped for joy, and he jumped on that cross for us. Jesus said that, let your yes be yes and your no be no. And when he was questioned and interrogated by chief priests as well as by a Roman governor, and he was asked, are you the Christ, even though he knew that it would be self-incriminating to him in those courts, he let his yes be yes, and he says that, that it is just exactly as you say it is. And he braced himself for the very worst that we had to offer him. We see Jesus modeling every single one of the Beatitudes as he goes to the cross. Where he's mourning his heart out in Gethsemane and on the cross, where he's very meek and and he amazes a Roman governor as as he lists all all of the false charges against him. But it says Jesus does not answer a single charge, and and we read about how that Roman governor was just amazed, saying, "Don't you answer to a single charge?" Jesus could have answered with twelve legions of angels, but I mean that's meekness right there. Jesus said that whenever anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other cheek also. And if you have your Bibles, we come to the very end of the book of Matthew just about. Matthew chapter 26. And I mean, Jesus said it and that's great, but are you going to live it, Jesus? As a minister, you know, every single week it's like that. I hear from other people, that was a good message, but. The most important part comes afterwards because now it's like, now we got to experiment with this. Now we've got to actually live what this message says. Matthew chapter 26, starting at verse 67. Here's what is going on as Jesus stands before Caiaphas, the high priest. Verse 67 says that then they spit in his face and they struck him and some slapped him saying, prophesy to us, Christ. Who is it that had struck you? Chapter 27, starting in verse 27 again, it says that the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters and they gathered the whole battalion before him and they stripped him and put a star- um, rather a scarlet robe on him. And twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand. And kneeling before him, they were mocking him saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they spit on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. When they had mocked him, they had stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him, and they led him away to be crucified. Jesus said that if anyone forces you to go one mile, (laughs) you guys want to arrest me? Go ahead and arrest me. You want to drag me to an illegal courtroom filled with all these false witnesses who are going to lie about me so that I can die unfairly? Go ahead and do that. You want to incite crowds against me? Incite them. You want to lay me down on a Roman post and and scourge me half to death? Go ahead and do it. You want to lift me up on a cross and crucify me for six hours? Go ahead and do it. I mean, Jesus goes the first, the second, the third, the fifth, the 1,000th mile for us. Jesus says that if anyone wants to ever sue you and to take your tunic, let him have cloak as well. And we read in John's Gospel how his garments had been divided there into four parts by the soldiers. And they had gambled upon the only treasure Jesus had in this world of a physical means, and that was his clothes. All of his other treasures were in heaven. And yet then it gets very hard for Jesus to, to honor, as it says... As he says that you shall love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And I mean, all day Jesus has to hang there on a cross while his worst enemy, scribes, by the way, elders of the people, Pharisees, Sadducees, march up to the cross, wagging heads at him, cursing him out, saying all kinds of ungodly things about him. Romans, what we find is though it's not just them, it's also us. That while we were still his enemies, Christ died for the ungodly. That is you and that's me. And for six hours, Jesus lived the Sermon on the Mount, praying continuously. Father, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. Father, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. Father, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. And then at last we come to the most important part of the Sermon on the Mount, where he says that that when you pray, pray like this, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Deliver us, he says, from the evil one. And yet he could just as easily also say, deliver us from self-righteousness. Lord, deliver us from being religious people, but not spiritual people. Lord, deliver us from the slavery of legalism. Deliver us from playing church on Sunday to being church on Thursday night. When we came up from from the waters of baptism, that was the greatest day of our life. Greatest day of my life. And yet that was not the end of it heard that happy splashing and, and all of heaven was rejoicing, that was just the beginning, wasn't it? Baptism is, is symbolic of Christ's death, but it's also symbolic of His new birth and of His resurrection. And once again, we see that the end is not the end, but that the end is just the beginning. And so we come to the end of our Sermon on the Mount series, one year in the making, Wow. This series is going to be over the moment that I stop speaking and I sit down. But if we wanted to, this could be the end of the sermon for us. But I believe what Jesus is saying to us, though, is that it's just the beginning. It's just the beginning. Now Jesus is like, your turn. I've lived it. I've told the story. I've given you the example, and now I want you to go and do it with with my spirit inside of you. You see, when this world looks at us, they're, they're going to look at us and say, what is this? This is a new teaching and it's got authority to it. I was handed a very hateful Jesus, but, but this person right here is showing me the real Jesus of, of history and of Scripture. My brothers and sisters, we are the kingdom of heaven. We are Jesus' church. We are the good news, and we are the Sermon on the Mount. This is not reinventing the wheel, but this is restoring the engine to the Christian machine as Jesus originally had dreamed that it would be before there was a world. When Abraham was standing there looking up at the stars and God was saying, that's going to be your descendants one day. When Jesus prays in John chapter 17 that his church would all be one, this is what Jesus envisioned when when he saw it. And so as we close this morning, I just want to call us to a couple of things. And that is to the two core main ideas of the Sermon on the Mount. Number one, you have heard that it was said. You got to be scribe like. You have to dress this way. You got to look this way. You got to draw lines in the sand. But, But now I tell you love every single person who you lay your eyes on. Don't be scribe like anymore. Be Christ like. And then lastly, where it says. Chapter 7 and verse 12, it says, Therefore, that is a summary of the entire Sermon on the Mount. Therefore, in everything, treat other people in the way that you would like to be treated. And in the last three months, I have both had a transgender um, barista at Starbucks. Last time I got a haircut, one mile away from where we're standing, had, had a barber who was a man who had a boyfriend. And I looked at that as an opportunity because this is a guy who undoubtedly has been told by many people in the Christian world, I imagine, that, that, he, that he's a scumbag and that he's the scum of the earth. My goal that day was not to preach down to him or to tell him where he was spending eternity, but, but I realized that the one job that I had that day was to show him and to show the other individual That not everybody who wears this name of of Christian hates you. Thinks that you're an animal. Thinks that you are the scum of the earth. Hell, I was once the scum of the earth too. And yet Jesus took me out of hell and he brought me up to his heaven. Jesus gave me not just a second chance, but three million and five chances. Every day we've got opportunities like this, don't we? to erase those lines in the sand and say we might not agree politically <laughs> we might not vote the same way we might not agree on everything but you know what as much as it depends on me I'm going to look in your face and I'm going to see a human being and I'm going to have compassion on you whether you have it for me in return or not on our bulletins i like to close with this where it simply says restore and renew your church, oh Lord, just as you had intention for it to be, starting with me, starting with me. The end is not the end, my brothers and sisters. The end is just the beginning.